took it out of our template, the word master plan, and we never use that, the word master anymore, and it's always just working plan. It's working, it's just the latest work. Greetings and welcome to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. This is episode number four and I'm your host, Dan Palmer. In this episode, I'm delighted to be in dialogue with Ben Folk from Whole Systems Design in Vermont, in the USA. Ben is a permaculture design colleague I deeply respect and whose name has come up many times in the most recent Making Permaculture Stronger inquiry, where I've been looking into the relationship between designing and implementing inside permaculture design process. I've been citing Ben's writings uh, in particular about the dangers inherent in a master planning or what I've been calling a fabricating approach to design process where the focus is on an upfront detailed design, uh, finishing that before you start implementing. In his work and writing, Ben's helping illuminate a pathway into a generative approach where design solutions instead emerge or unfold from within the fabric of the hands-on process of actually creating landscapes buildings or whatever. I hope you enjoy this free-flowing and wide-ranging conversation. I know I, I just loved it and I'll hit you up with some links at the end. See you then. All right, here I am with Ben Falk who has dialed in on the phone from Vermont over in the USA. Thanks so much for, for joining me, Ben. Thanks, Dan. It's good to, good to talk to you again. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for making the time. It's great to connect with you and you've know, been aware of your work for a long time. I was just thinking this morning about the first time I, I learned of your existence, which was, was uh, one way or another, I got a hold of your book, The Resilient Farm and Homestead, and I was flipping through it and struck by it. I was like, oh, this is something, this is, there's some originality here. You know, as, as you know, mm. a, a lot of books in the f- field tend to have a fair bit of overlap in the, in the content they, mm-hmm. they cover, and, and just the originality. I loved the emphasis on the kind of no-bullshit approach. I'm, I'm only going to share things that I've had first-hand experience of. The whole section and, and, and emphasis you gave of ideas around attitudinal resilience and just that the critical mm. importance of of those aspects, personality, attitude, and, and basic skill sets, and even things like superfoods or, or, or foods so nutritious that they help offset the damaging effect of the toxins that we're all exposed to. You know, a lot of a lot of unique flavors, yeah. which is great. Yeah, and and then over time. Oh, pleasure, pleasure. Uh, thanks for writing it. And then over time, I, um, <laughs> as I, I started to move into the space of asking some questions about permaculture design and, and realizing there's some, there's some conversations to be had there and some, some work to be done. And coming back to your stuff and looking a lot more closely in what you, what you had to say about design process and realizing that you've contributed a lot, I believe, to the making of a stronger permaculture or, or towards strengthening permaculture. In particular, you were a really rare voice at that time as I surveyed the literature, explicitly warning against what I think is not, it's a, it's a culture-wide, but it's also become a permacultural, I might even say an infatuation with the idea of a master plan, with the tendency of a plan to mm. become a master. And it was so mm-hmm. nice to, to see so certain authors alluded to issues with the idea of completing a design to a detailed level and then thinking of that as a separate and prior step to implementation. But it was so nice for you to be explicitly, you know, waving a few red flags and from your own experience sort of saying, hey, you know, just, just be careful. This can be dangerous territory because you, you can obviously play the game as well as anyone else in, in terms of generating beautiful designs. Mm-hmm. But, but looking at your book and then listening to some podcasts and stuff afterwards, I picked up an increasing disillusionment with that approach. And, and yeah. I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to hear you. Yeah. Hear where you're good, at with that. What's going on? 
Yeah, I like, you know, it's great. I like that you're bringing this up because it's not talked about all that much. And it's kind of, it's very fertile ground though. I mean, it's, it's important stuff to think about and no one, I don't know, it's, um, there's a lot there for us all to chew on and it doesn't seem like we really chewed on it too much in the, in the movement, you know? Yeah, yeah, I was yeah, I was surprised to find that. Yeah, that it's like, hang on, this is really yeah. important stuff. Where's the conversation? Where is it at? Yeah, and I mean, I think it's only it really came for for me, like you said, we we actually make plans for a, for a living. A big part of how I make a living um, is to to make these like nice plans for people, and mm-hmm. I think by doing that, after a number of years of doing that, you really get to see, wow, this is there's an allure to that for people. Yes, yes. Like you get to tell them their future and it can be just great if you just do enough planning, but it, it's, you know, it's really not like that. And I think by actually doing, making those plans and kind of helping people live them out, you get to see it's not, it's no, it's no magic bullet and it's no, you know, we don't have, um, what are those eight, the eight, the sphere, the magic eight ball you look into, you know, the Oracle, it helps us. Uh, <laughs> you know, that tells someone's future or helps determine someone's future all that much compared to smart living day to day, you know, iteratively over time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and I mean, what I've come to realize is that, that not only are these things, not a magic bullet, they're often like a bullet that can take some of the magic away in, in the sense of they, <laughs> like the, the allure, they have this sort of magnetic attraction that can distract you from what's the reality of the situation now? What's the right next move to make now mm-hmm. based on the situation? Well, mm-hmm. the plan says this, you know, there's this, even, even sometimes I think it's almost unconscious. It's so subtle because a lot of, a lot of the initial reaction that I've experienced is like, yeah, you know, it looks totally fine. Like we do, we do, a, we do a beautiful plan. Then we're, we're wide open to feedback as we go forward. But I've, I've, mm-hmm. I've noticed that, yeah, there's, there's a danger there. I don't know. Yeah. Was that, is that something you've found as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also we work with, we've worked with plenty of people that are put a lot of, um, are keen to put a lot of energy into the planning Mm -hmm. and they don't have that much energy or time sometimes to really even to, to do much on their land. And what little they have sometimes goes um, disproportionately into planning and not look, spend the time in your garden, you know, spend the time out in your, field in your woodland you know if you only have so much time the time on the land is is so much more valuable than on paper yeah not that both can't be important but we see a lot of people with only so much time and energy and and they they really put too much and you know so much more emphasis on the heady planning stuff sometimes than really being out in it yeah and like you said some people then who are going to go really implement can also be misled at times by all of their energy that they put into planning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy for the ego to get attached. I mean, I've started observing this quite closely when I'm working with participants on design courses and all that, and and just noticing these little moments where for whatever reason, wherever it came from, an idea pops up for someone and they get it down onto the plan. And from that moment on, because it's their idea, they'll, they'll invest energy in defending their idea sort of mm-hmm. totally get out of the space of is it a good idea or not in fact let's assume it's a right. bad idea and try and find find problems with so it's funny how that cultural aspect yeah. of psychology can feed into feed into this 
Yeah, well, I think humans, we tend, especially modern, maybe modern humans, us now tend to like latch on to when we think we have a, a sure idea, we like latch on to it and we aren't very good at letting it be dynamic. I mean, we do that with like species composition shifting all the time, right? The whole native, the idea of a native plant community, the way we think of it in, in a lot of conservation and ecological fields are so embedded in that snapshot view and where we're, we're not open to how things are constantly in flux and, and need to just have an understanding that any plans are just the latest, greatest idea and they, and they must change if, if they're yes. actually going to you know, update it and, and made real, there will have to change, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And, you know, I, I, as you were talking, I realized, <clears> yeah, I think that's that's right. It's, yeah, like, okay, the land is here now and then let's draw a static snapshot of how we see it being in 10 years or whatever the case may be. And now let's just get from A to B when where that's the point is to arrive at this this destination diagram. When, as you're saying, the... Is not how reality works. And not only that, the, the whole excitement and joy of being involved in land is the journey is that unpredictable, ever unfolding, emergent reality that you're part of that can, can never be predicted. Yeah. And if anything, is, there's no staticness about it. Yeah, and it makes it, you know, so magical to be a part yeah. of. And I think yeah. it's one of yeah. the reasons a lot of us, it's one of the few things I feel like I'll never get bored of because yes. it's always yeah. something new. Every season you think, oh, I got this dialed in or this I need to learn more about, especially. as And, and then the season is just totally different than the last 10 seasons you've had doing. You're like, wow, that's a whole new craft and a whole new skill that I still have yet to develop you know yes. and, and yep. this or that because the weather was different or whatever was different but i like to think of planning more and more as just starting points and starting yes. points that continue to have to restart and restart and restart over the years and you know that plans can be helpful reflection can be helpful strategy can be helpful but um, yes. yep. i don't know there's almost something inherent in the word plan that just even sounds too static because yes. it's used yep. that way so often yeah 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 totally yeah I, I, I like that remembering that emphasis in your book too of the point is to find a good place to start relative to where things are mm. now in a way that avoids right. mistakes or particularly you know you're not going to eliminate mistakes but avoids large you know mistakes or what in the permaculture uh, phrase of type one errors and 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 avoids right. dead ends where you're going to have to back up particularly early on where that can be expensive and, and not good mm-hmm. for morale but yeah w- whatever happens towards that like taking good steps that avoid big mistakes and dead ends the point of whatever happens is to assist that whereas it can flip around and the point of it can become the the plan yeah yeah and and, and amount of information as you know that we pick up when we after we start only after we start the amount of information and mm-hmm. feedback we get then is uh and the importance of that info mm-hmm. it yeah. sometimes just blows out of the water whatever we can get in the observation phase yes. so yep. that's where yep. starting and i mean i'll never forget we did soil samples in the fall and winter when i got to our original site 14 years ago uh-huh. and looked at soils maps a bunch. Even before I got there, I was like studying the soils maps and they're all pretty accurate to a point. But then two years in, we did a broad, our kind of first broader planting. I think it was about in the second year, not the first. And within the first day of doing that, even the, probably the first morning, I realized that there's a very severe restrictive layer over a whole bunch of the property that I never 
could have uncovered except by starting to plant the trees yeah. because all the soil tests I was taking were, you know, they were from the top eight inches of soil, but I wasn't digging 12, 14, 16 inches down. Um, I could have, but, you know, planting trees allowed me to do that all over the site. And immediately my picture of like the site's potential and challenges in reality was just so much deeper and that was just from digging some holes for you know a morning yep 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 yeah but that's a that's a great that, example uh, i mean yeah one could do that you could say well that could have been my analysis phase and, they, and they'd be right that that's true but um there's so many other things too that can go into that when you start actually implementing and i mean you can implement a tree planting for five or ten dollars or for free depending on how you raise trees so it doesn't have to be like that's not a like that's not like oh let's try to dig a pond here ram the, you know yeah, without yeah. a lot more um, information or you know build a foundation or a road so there of course it's respective to the types of actions we're doing that just gets started idea like grab a shovel start digging around start looking in the in the soil spend time in the land start harvesting some firewood you know start foraging and you're going to um, pick up so much more than you can on, on paper in a lot of ways oh totally and i'm totally with you there and of course there's so many things typically on any property that you can get on with that are very low risk sometimes it's cleaning up a certain area or yeah adding adding trees right. to, you know that that's not going to compromise anything you want to do later on you yeah, know one way i'm yeah. thinking about it is to design and develop and live and maintain and so on to, to be in relationship with land is it's a sequence of decisions and often with we're, we're putting a lot of energy on a whole bunch of decisions before we get started and then we plant the tree and we find the restrictive layer or the bulldozer comes in and finds this piece of mother earth this bedrock that doesn't want to negotiate um as as the, actually that was that david holmgren has shared in these kinds of discussions an example of with me of that where he had intentions for where the house was going to go but his property um was sue and his property melidora it had it had different ideas and there was a there was some sandstone bedrock that didn't want to be argued with and the upshot was that from very very early on that the house site had to be moved some meters and yeah. being able to get clear on yeah what's the right next step let's make that and, and get into the real game of, of being informed by what's re really going on and I, and I think often what happens and I'm, I'm kind of conscious we're belaboring this point a bit but I think it's a point worth belaboring because I, I see this again and again and people coming up through permaculture design courses and so on and getting started often what happens is you put all this energy into these decisions that are predicated on or follow from earlier decisions then you go to implement those initial decisions and of course things change and there can be a sense of grief or frustration i, I remember feeling this when i when i started we, we were doing a lot of design work in a suburban context and the the anxiety i felt around trying to impose my design on the site when often the site was giving me contrary information and, and my mentality was which is so ironic you know given that permaculture is supposedly about you know, harmonizing with and, and partnering with natural systems that I realized, hang on a second, I'm trying to impose some ideas I've had on my brain or on a piece of paper onto the, the site rather than, than listening to it and getting into the real process of, of authentically mm -hmm. honoring and growing together with a piece of land. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's an important distinction to be made between people, the types of people that use the design process and the permaculture design process and an overlay design any type of you know systematic design process not just permaculture and there tends to be i think the numbers 
are occupied, the people that engage in same permaculture and other some other design processes tends to be more commonly followed and the numbers are, are bigger for people that are pretty new to land and the lifestyle, let's say. Uh-huh. And so there's so many activities and, and types of endeavors that people get into when they get onto land that for people who are relatively new to it, what I found is they start learning about so many different things that they don't want to do that they, after trying them, they're not interested, you know, after yes. give it a year or two or three and they're like, Oh, we hate doing this or yep. we're not yep. good at this and we'd much rather do this. And so I think what I see is a lot of people get a little bit swamped and astray when they come into it. Those, those types of folks that come into it versus if you're an experienced farmer, or you've been homesteading and you've been on land and you move to a new site, that design process, I think it can be less dangerous and less mm-hmm. misleading oftentimes and more just helpful because you're already coming in with so much information about, mm-hmm. you know, what you really want to do in a place. Because um, there's so many, of course, ways, you know, we all see people get to land and they think like it's a grab bag. All these techniques are yes. just a grab bag. And the more of them you do, the better. You know, yeah, I yeah, want yeah. the herb spiral and the Chinampas and this and that and and they just think the more it's like the more stuff you put in a cake the better it's going to be and of course it's like <laughs> nothing could be further from the truth yeah <laughs> it's like you have to you have to come to a sense of how that fits in your own particular life and, and your own particular place and I know I see a lot of that kind of you know confusion over techniques and mm-hmm. and how they fall into their place you know with how yes. we relate to land. Yep. Yep. Sure. Yeah. That's, Very, that's sorry. I cut you off. No. Yeah. Just that, that. I think. I think I made the point that they're just. They're not necessarily. They're not primary. You know. They're yes, fit yes. into. Yes. An overall armature and. I know it's very confusing, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, no, I'm glad. I, was, I had a uh, mental note to, to ask you about that because obviously anyone working in the space you're working in is, is constantly coming up against this very strong inclination of, of folk to reach into the grab bag. And, of course, when you do a lot of courses in permaculture or related fields or read books about permaculture, I, I realise there tends to be a, a focus on the things like the ethics and principles and maybe pattern lit- literacy, so some more general foundational stuff. And then the balance of content is about the grab bag, all the stuff in the grab bag, all the techniques, all the cool things you could do. And so uh, I was wondering over time if you'd found any helpful ways of gently getting the point across to, to folk who are in that grab bag mentality and also mm-hmm something I've explored with this deep idea in our culture that to build something, we need to identify the, all these different parts, all these elements, and then kind of effectively click or join them together. When, as you were saying just then, the, the real game is about fit, about identifying where's the overlap, the, the genuine overlap between these people and this place. What, what's, what's the realm right. of things that can happen here that, that nourishes both? And how, yeah. do we, how do we unfold? Yeah, sure. May, maybe we unfold some of these ideas about water harvesting earthworks or whatever the case may be but yeah how does it happen in a way that fits that honors them because if you just grab it out of the book or the course or the whatever chances are it's not going to fit and you end up with this awkward assemblage of things that don't fit and and you can feel that and of, and of course I think that idea can be perpetuated inside of permaculture education and, and books and I see that as a there's just something I'd like to get out on the table and see conversations about yeah. that and, and basically get the people that are coming fresh out of courses and getting into this early on, just save them a lot of grief. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like to, I mean, the metaphor I mentioned before, I think is 
very apt and I, I tend to use that. I think I've done used some other approaches, but I think probably to answer your question, I, I do try, tend to put in those terms like all of these techniques in permaculture uh-huh. are potential ingredients, yes. you know, yep. in, a, in, in like you're cooking and, and yep. they're ingredients you could use and, and many are not appropriate to your particular place on the planet, you know, mm. physical, physical conditions. And then many you won't even like the taste of. So you, yes. you kind of have to figure out, all right, which ones, you know, do, aren't even applicable to, to where I am right now, you know, yep. with the weather conditions being that what they are here in my soil conditions, et cetera, with the ecological conditions. And then, you know, which ones do I actually like? So I think there is a time early on where there's some kind of healthy trying of different techniques, as long as it's low risk to see, hey, you know, do we like to do this? Do we like to raise, do we like to have chicken tractors? Do we like to have whales? Do we like to have herb spirals, whatever it is. Do we like to have this type of rainwater catchment or this type of compost toilet or, or a Jean Payne mount, whatever it is. Yes. Yep, and yep. I, I think, I mean, I know I've followed that, that approach a bit, like trying a lot of different techniques as long yep, as they fit yep. the site. And then we weeding 10, 5, 10, 20 years, I think our whole life is, is a process too of weeding through those. Mm. And they also change some things we've done. We really enjoy doing for a number of years. And then it's like, oh, it doesn't fit, you know, our context now, like um, shiitake logs are a good uh-huh. one. Yep. Pretty sensible thing to do here to raise, you know, shiitakes on logs. Mm-hmm. But after a while, I just got sick of moving logs around. So it's just <laughs> yeah. like, I already have to do that to heat my house. You know, I was like, that doesn't fit what I want to do anymore. So things shift too. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I see a lot of people also maybe not listening to what what's shifting and they're doing things they don't like to do. And it's like, hey, there's a lot of different things you can do in a place that make yeah. sense, you know, yeah. for yeah. Um, production or regeneration. And so being able to constantly shift those, you know, over a lifetime, of course, is as essential as shifting other things throughout our lifetime, like mm. the kind of exercise we do or what mm. books we read or, you know, you name it, what we eat, mm. when we sleep, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's beautiful to you speaking on. I, lo- I loved how you use the word potential, you know, that way of communicating. These are potential ingredients. They're potential parts of your system. Right. Which is a distinction I've come to as well. And part of it is just understanding what a, what a, what a part actually is because for something to be a part that implies that it fits that it's part of a whole and so a lot of the things we're seeing they're mm. not they're not parts that we can pick and choose they're potential parts you know the things that might fit in the the job of a of a healthy process and just getting out there and living and trying things is to is exactly as you're saying is to um, assess the degree to which they they fit and often a healthy sign that you're on track is that they're changing and you're they're coming up in combinations or or permutations or whatever that are unique and that don't you don't find any of the books. And I think that can be a, I mean, it can go both ways, but that can be a promising sign about these ideas. It's to me the thing is how do, how do these ideas that came from outside you that came from outside your land, what's the process by which those ideas get filtered and winnowed and adapted such that they when they when they show up on your place or in your life if they do that that they um, they fit they belong yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's a good point. It's it's a broad and broad point, and I think a lot of people also there. There's a common way people maybe go um, into a place they don't want to go with it by just 
not doing what they really enjoy. So many yes, of these yeah, things I yeah. find are, are, you know, it's not like anything. It, it's not that unlike an occupation, let's say. Like we wouldn't be, we wouldn't know to be surprised if someone was doing something they weren't that good at and they didn't like for work. Mm -hmm. um, but they, but they keep, they keep doing it. You know, that's kind of like having a technique that just doesn't fit your land base or, or your life and that you keep carrying it out. And so it seems more common than people choosing what they do for a living. Although I guess it's really common for people to take on <laughs> livings that they don't enjoy either, but it has to be a conscious choice. That's like you said, shifting. If you're, you're a normal human being, your interests shift throughout your life. And sometimes mm -hmm. your land needs, what what appropriate techniques even for the land shift of course mm. as well that's that's mm. very interesting you know like maybe whales right here on this part of the property made sense at one point and now they don't anymore mm. or vice yeah. you know or vice versa with another technique you know grazing here or planting trees here and now it makes sense to actually clear this area you know mm. it's, that's always very interesting and mm. i feel like that would be endlessly um entertaining and complex my own life you know on, on the land basis i find myself to always be reading that yeah mm -hmm. yeah yep. flowing and kind of surfing with it yeah one as you're talking i realize yeah. one 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 kind of major evolution in my design process approach over the years has, has been adapting and bringing in in a way that fits me uh some ideas that started with alan savory's holistic management i've changed it quite a lot but i still owe alan a lot for for the original ideas where the focus is on happiness and quality of life for the people on the land which is sort of part of what you're talking about as as well and i've realized that up front for me i i place that on a par with as i suspect you do as well with reading the landscape reading the people and part of that is is ascertaining and feeling into what makes you happy what do you enjoy what's what does quality of life mm -hmm. look like for you and how do we unfold okay. configurations and techniques and whatever inside the fabric of you on this land in a way where a key prominent prioritized criteria is what's it doing for your quality of life what's it doing for your happiness where of course again and again in permaculture projects and projects in general something else is prioritized it might be the health of the land um, it might be something else but in a way where uh, if your quality of life is constantly taking a hit at some point you you throw in the towel and, and walk away yeah i was wondering it'd be good to hear your how you've you've come at that sort of domain a bit more that aspect of it all yeah i'm glad you brought up alan savory's work because i came across his book when i was in college and okay it kind of blew me away that something was out there that was so direct and and sensible when i came across it and then i remember starting reading the book uh -huh. and it i found it very like of course of, co of course mm. it's this way and mm. it told it it said a lot to me about where society was at mm. that we need that we need a system um and a, and a coherent kind of you know a book and a term for a way of thinking mm. that should just be so common sense like do what you love and you're really good at like yeah. how how we how have we not have how have we forgotten that that's like a starting point for our lives I, I think i don't know personally i've had a very always very poor what most people would call poor self-discipline um uh -huh. and, and a lot of people who know me would would disagree but i actually think i i've always had i've always had a, a hard time doing things that i don't want to do like in, since i was very young and so to me when i 
started reading Savory and started getting into this stuff, I was like, well, of course, of course we shouldn't be doing something we're not, you know, really stoked on mm. and driven by and compelled to do, you know, kind of instinctually. And, but it is interesting that I think people do need to be reminded about that. Mm. And I think that that goes back to us being in a broken, uh, kind mm. of a broken society and, and mm. broken relationship with ourselves because we shouldn't have to be reminded of that. I don't think mm. it, it's mm. kind of like, it, it's important to acknowledge that we may need to do that work. But it, it says a lot about how far, how, how much distance has become between our, us and ourselves and, mm. you know, and us and the world that we can engage with that we think it's not possible or that we shouldn't expect to have like just a full stoke about mm. what we're doing every yeah. day yeah. with our plays, <laughs> you know. I don't know. So I kind of do, I think, come at it with, I remember having a discussion with my friend in college about some of this and um, we we're reading Peter Senge and like just general systems mm -hmm. thinking stuff to Nella Meadows. Yep. And I remember thinking, what's the big deal? Like this is real common sense. And he, he's saying, no, it's not, it's not common sense. It's, it's very important. I'm like, yeah, well it is important, but it, it should be, ob it, it should be more obvious, you know, mm -hmm. than it is. Mm -hmm. Um, it is hard to do, though, as someone with my kind of landscape architect hat on and someone who helps people plan their land and in some ways their life, um, their life, it is hard to step into the realm of like helping people with their holistic context kinds of stuff mm -hmm. if unless we're really spending tons of time with them, which is pretty expensive for people. So yeah, yeah. I, I feel like, you know, we have to tell our clients like, you need to do that work with yourself, but mm -hmm. I'm not a psychologist or, you know, someone who does that work with, or a personal coach, you know, so I'm not someone who really gets into that work with them. We, we say, here's some options that would be sensible for this landscape to try. And here's good general layouts for, for major elements like roads and mm -hmm. orchards and ponds and buildings. And then you have a ton of work to do with yourself, you know, putting all these together, mm -hmm. you know, cause we get the whole, the holistic context piece and what drives people, what gets people out of bed in the morning piece. I know there's people actually emerging from the permaculture world who actually coach and work with people on that front, but that's not, you know, that's out of my own purview. So I, I can't, we don't do that. So I, I, it'd be hard for me to comment on that piece, except to say that it's major and everyone yeah. does have to do that work themselves. Yeah. Oh, good to hear. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And I, I t totally agree. It's, I, in some ways I'd say it's common sense. That's for some reason in this dysfunctional culture has become uncommon. Right. Exactly. Um, as you're talking, I, I remember one, one time after exploring this on a, on a course, one of the participants was reflecting after and said, hang on a second. I've just realized that, yeah, I, I've been living my life without prioritizing my own happiness, that that, that could be a, mm. a realization. All right. Well, yeah. one, one, when you mentioned landscape architect, is it correct that you studied at the Conway School of Landscape Design? Is that yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know a lot about that, but I, I mean, I, I've, I know Dave, Jackie did the same thing, and one of the reasons he went there is because he found a, um, a lack of anything he considered a, a comprehensive systematic design process. I don't, it'd be, yeah, it'd be great yeah. to just hear a little bit about the reasons you went there and, and what you learned yeah. there and, and, what, and to what degree does what you learned there inform what you do today? 
Sure. Yeah, it, Dave, Dave went there quite a number of years before me, and it, it, I think the threads, the commonality of what carried that program along every year has remained the same, and they basically have just uh, put together a very solid design process. It's largely inspired, you could say, by Ian McCard, you know, the overlay yep. Um, yep. design yep. process. It, it's, it's not... I want to say it's not atypical for, for a good landscape architecture program to lead one through this kind of design process, but it's much more based in ecology. You know, it takes ecology and, and the features of a place, processes of place, the existing conditions seriously, whereas I think most landscape architecture doesn't take it seriously. It's, you know, landscape architecture as a whole knows it should look at the site. But it, it really doesn't, you know, mostly hasn't um, taken yeah. that very seriously. So Conway School has just said, look, we can do serious landscape architecture as it's normally practiced and make great spaces for people, do the artistic part, which is really usually where it ends for most landscape architecture in the modern era, and actually do it as ecologists and do it as, as good scientists and do it, you know, do it right by the place, by the water systems, by the soil, by the wildlife, et cetera. Yep, yep. Um, and so they, they also pair people, they pair people with real projects and then you get to go through that design process. Very heavy on site analysis. I mean, actually when I was there, the amount of design we got into, if you use the term design to mean uh, here are proposed potential solutions to your challenges, mm -hmm. that back half of the, say, the design process was very minimal and it was mostly emphasis uh, large emphasis on analysis like what is there and what happens there and that's great i mean that's the foundation yeah um, yep. so in and you get to you know you get to go through three different projects with a real life client you know carrying that through and mm -hmm. in 10 in 10 months so it's it's not three years. I was actually looking at three-year, you know, typical masters of architecture and or math MLA programs in the states, and you know, two and a half of those years, oftentimes, are there's a reason they're in the art department, you know, yeah. most universities, and not in any science department. Yep, yep. But great, great place, yeah, and it's still still happening in Western Mass. Um, okay, it's a very small program. Yep. 20 people or so every year. And and do you find you the techniques and the stuff you learned that's a, um, a, a real active part of what you continue to do today as a professional designer? Yeah, I mean, I think the process, you know, mm -hmm. stays with you. The process made a lot of sense to me, to me going in. It wasn't necessarily new things because I had actually, you know, used Ian McCarter's work a bit in undergraduate school. But um, just getting some real life practice going through that design process, the analysis process with clients and the goals articulation process as well. Yeah. Um, yep. And then just getting to practice, practice it three times with a real client. Yeah. Um, yep. It's great because a lot of people, you know, there's a lot, there's a whole other art, artful side of like how you work with an actual client and how you talk with them and how you present yep. your ideas. They're very, very, they were very effective at helping us present ideas clearly and gave us a lot of language to use and in the field. So yeah, it was, it was we do rely on it. But then of course, like anything, you rely on it mostly to get started. Yes. And then you're your own, you're your own best teacher. And what yeah. you do is your own best teacher. So, you know, then you get to teach yourself 
for the rest of the time, <laughs> which is, I think, even more fun than yeah, learning yeah, yeah. from others. Hey, it'd be great to hear just a little bit about what 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 you've got on the go at the moment. What's I mean, I'd love to hear about your, your team too. I, I get the idea you work with others, but what are some of the the juiciest, yeah. more juicy, enjoyable projects you have have going on currently? Yeah, well, we we're really in the midst of quite a few like long term projects that are uh-huh. multi year. One in Michigan and one in, in towards New York City from here. Uh-huh. Those keep us busy in the kind of design studio, and then we're always doing a bunch of smaller projects kind of scattered around the country, mostly, you know, homestead design. Mm-hmm. And then I'm doing a lot of like site consults locally or well all over, but especially in Vermont, New England. And, you know, honestly, the, my favorite part of the work is site consults. Yep. You know, we don't, I don't particularly enjoy making paper for people, mm. but for larger projects that have a public aspect or kind of an organizational aspect, those are important uh, for those projects and we do we do we are doing you know always doing a few of those and two of them are keeping us really busy last few years and there's always ones in and out they're great you know they're slow a lot of this stuff uh, a lot of the planning process you know a lot of the world of architecture and landscape architecture i think is incredibly tedious Mm. and it's a lot of bogged down in permitting issues and making plans for for permits for lenders that actually takes up i think a lot of the time with some of these larger projects so i used to think larger projects you know you think you leave school thinking larger projects are the sexy projects and i i think they're the they're the um boring unfun projects <laughs> just yeah. really bogged down in the junk you know and a, a small project you can go from like consultation through analysis quickly to like, here are some options and, mm-hmm. you know, get started. And our, our, um, our joy is in seeing any of this a reality, you know, not a pretty plan set mm-hmm. that, that, that pretty plan set kind of satisfaction wore off, you know, in the first couple of years. And then it's mm-hmm. like, that doesn't, you know, that's not much to be happy about. I don't think. And, there is an allure to that, and I think a lot of people get get into that early on. But wears, that wears out pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, and no, I found the same thing. I remember my ego kind of glowing when clients would would refer back to the pretty picture we delivered to them and say, "Yeah, and we and we we you know we put the path exactly where you happened to draw it." And even though I would be thinking that was actually a little bit arbitrary, you know, I just, it just needed to be from here to here, so I put a bit of a curve into it. Right. I, so I was conscious of that, but at the same time, you know, I felt a little bit, you know, like, "Oh, yes." But now that's, to me, that sort of thing is an indicator that I've done something wrong. You know, I want, I want, I love it when clients mm-hmm. say, you know what, you know what, Dan, that's, that's an interesting idea. We, we're going to, we're going to put it through our own process and check it out and get back to you as, as, to, as to whether we think it's a good idea. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 um, it's an interesting field. And I mean, the, one of the things that keeps us going in it, that's, that's really positive because I think we've, we've been very, it's great. We're bringing up a lot of challenges and kind of uh-huh. critiques of common practice. But one of the, you know, on the corollary to that, you know, one of the things that's very exciting is just the role of being an interpreter and walking people's land and helping them realize, wow, they have, you know, a huge butternut in their woods they didn't know about. And that's a really important tree and don't cut it down and yeah, you can yeah, propagate yeah. the nuts, you know, like yeah. here's a huge resource or here's, you have water coming out of the ground, you have a place for a spring or, 
you know, just opportunities that are on the land and getting people mm. to being a conduit for people into their land mm. is, is certainly you know, the, one of the core functions I think we all have to, to do in this work, or at least how I see us trying to work with people. But mm-hmm. we do get bogged down in the, in the paper with the large projects, that's for sure. Yep, yep. But yeah. uh, more and more, we actually try to steer people away from the you know, master planning work which incidentally I meant to mention before we've tried to, we have moved over the last handful of years to never, we took it out of our template, the word master plan, Christ. and we never use that, the word master anymore. And it's always just working plan. Yep. Yep. You know, cause it's, it's working. It's just the latest work, but we try to steer people away from that is what I was going to say. And then, and towards a site consult and just kind of more hourly, you know, helping people identify some things and then, hey, say, hey, get started and give us a call or an email mm-hmm. and we'll come back and assist or we can talk you through things, you know, rather than here's a whole bunch of paper yep, and, yep. Uh, you know, follow this. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's so great to hear. Yeah, we've totally come to that same place. Sometimes we call it adaptive yeah. design consultancy where, yeah, the, the, the paperwork is absolutely minimized. I'm actually enjoying the process of the, the plan, the, the drawing is something that's generated by the process of developing the land. And so it's like, yeah, after, mm. after we, uh, you know, after we actually do all the stuff, the earthworks and the trees and uh, the animals, it all, it all happens. <laughs> if you like, we can draw you a picture to see what happens, you know, but, right. but, but right. We're, we're drawing, we're drawing on the landscape. And I know you've talked about the importance of where possible, one-to-one mock-ups you know like really stringing things out and, and using the feedback you're getting as you walk down that taped out line or the rope on the ground or whatever it is to inform mm-hmm. design decisions rather than how you imagine the reality might be on a piece of paper in some ways i like i'm going to talk about christopher alexander in a second but one of his patterns is gradual stiffening and i like the idea that, that you know even on recently on a 10 acre property we staked out the the edge between the perimeter shelter belt planting some native trees and the the internal spaces we marked out the entire thing with with stakes and you know, electric fencing tape and then we started to bring in your vehicles to stand for significant trees and made a clay model but just all these steps where you're just slowly mm. moving towards it and then at some point the work actually happens but it doesn't seem like this huge jump from a picture on a piece of paper to actually implementing it because right. you've kind of you've approximated and come come that close to it that it yeah i hadn't thought about it that before but it's like gradual stiffening or, or just incremental steps and at some point it's like, right. oh, it actually it, it's actually happened now but that doesn't <laughs> feel like it, this enormous there's not this enormous gulf or chasm between the the picture and the, the reality <laughs> right you've, you've mocked it up so much it's almost real and then you make it real that's right yeah that's that's that just a continuation of the the same process speaking of christopher alexander yeah. <laughs> i know i know he's been a uh, you've mentioned to me in the past he's, he's been a very significant inspiration for your work and one aspect yeah. of his work came to mind when you were talking about how a lot of uh, landscape architectural programs are, are housed within an arts uh, faculty and yeah, that got me thinking about this what, what i find this fascinating rift in our culture between beauty and function where to use uh, intuitive processes that that are aimed at creating beautiful sculptures or paintings or music or whatever in our culture those have been relegated or delegated or could even say sidelined to the domain of art you know well that's art you know and that's that's what mm. artists do but we do science you know we, we're designers we're professionals we need to get a building built here you know there's no there's no space for for that stuff that the intuitive and a focus on 
on creating beautiful things, that tends to be um, deprioritized. When I know f- for uh, Alexander, he he sees that as just simply a it's not a it's not one or the other. It's a it's a it's a false rift. And, and what would a process look like where we equally honour function and beauty, art and science? And I was just wondering if you'd had any, you know, have you have you been there? Have you thought about that stuff? And how's that showing up in your work? Or yeah. I'm so glad you bring that up because I think that it's so core and I think about it all the time. And I was just on a riding around my neighborhood on my bike right before this call, right? <laughs> literally immediately past when the call was supposed to start. And um, I always, when I'm doing that or walking or driving around, I'm admiring all of the rural built and land environment, you know, human environment that the original farmers who got here, you know, a few hundred years ago. Um, not the original people. I wish I could see more of that. But, but you know, the the early farm, early American farmers and the Im- imprint they left on the place. And there, it's so often here that that what's still around from them is incredibly beautiful, um, in strikingly beautiful compared to what the modern world is making. Mm-hmm. And that's widely recognized even by people, of course, who live in cities and they come up to Vermont doing it to see these things. And I'm always thinking, like, how did those things come about? You know, mm-hmm. how did that perfect barn into that hillside mm-hmm. happen? And I'm always struck by many different things, such as they didn't have a design process like we think of design process, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they yep. probably didn't even put this stuff on paper. And it made me think of it's made me think of it something actually when you were talking before that cap encapsulates it, which is. They, they made these things out of necessity, right? Like necessity mm. forced all of these these beautiful things into mm. existence, them meeting necessity. And I think a lot, the way I think of art and have come to think of it, I guess, is that that's a byproduct of gracefully meeting necessities. Mm. That art could be a, just a byproduct of gracefully meeting what, what we need to do in the world. Mm. Um, not this kind of self-conscious, I'm going to make something artistic yep, yep. and you know maybe maybe it'll, maybe it'll function maybe i'll get sick of it maybe we'll we'll knock it down because it doesn't make any sense later but you know that that's i think a, a real contortion and the world we live in i think is so embedded in thinking about making self-conscious mm-hmm. art that it's even weird to think about it as like a secondary or tertiary byproduct of us just like living with our places and, mm-hmm. and doing things with craft, you know, with an enduring value and skill and making things well that they take on, you know, an artful quality. But we see that, you know, vernacular design. I, I just am in love with how people have done that throughout the world. And to me, that's like, I, I, I don't, maybe I'm not too open-minded, but I don't see a lot of, what strikes me as art in like anything that's ornamented or, or, you know, made to look beautiful or yes, things like yep. that. Yep. Yep. Oh, that is, that was, thank you for that. That was beautiful. Beautiful. I really love the way you, you know, you express that. It's obviously something that you're present to that idea of graceful necessity of, of great, you gracefully adapting yourself to the necessities of your situation or however you put it. I'm I'm going off the deep end yeah. um, with Christopher Alexander's work, in particular his later work. Where, well, it's interesting actually because in the one of his very first books, notes on the synthesis of form, he starts by drawing a distinction between what he calls self-conscious and I think it's self-conscious and unconscious, or else unself-conscious design, 
which is exactly what you were just alluding to and the idea that this idea of a you know this profession and this this separate idea of a separate expert who's who's called a designer um, has come onto the place and they're trying to sell their work and end up you know in, in the in the architectural context chasing the image chasing the this this the double page spread in the in the magazine but before right. that there was no there wasn't even any, any any idea of design and not only were where function and beauty kind of intertwined, just like, as you said, it's in the simple, straightforward human process of meeting necessities. Alexander later yeah. talked about of being deeply immersed in what are the real actual forces at play in the situation? What's really going on here and how do we unfold mm -hmm. form, whether it's a barn or a landscape, how do we unfold, unfold form in a way that really listens to and honors and accommodates and, and resolves these these forces, and that's I think that's the feeling you get when you see one of these beautiful barns that's just nestled so perfectly into the the hillside. And then the flip side, as you say, is that beauty, beauty has become this after the fact ornamental thing where we're trying to approach it directly, rather than it being the secondary or tertiary thing that that comes out of that healthier process. And and as you were talking, I realised that it's not just that beauty and function end up not being opposed, or you know you choose one at the expense of the other, but you're talking about there was no such there was no design process in the sense we mean it today and i think that what we call design or planning and implementing or doing that those two were similarly they sat inside just the, the process of making of creating you know and there was zero separation and it didn't make any sense to to do a design first and then implement it because the, the it was just what i mean effectively it was what we started with what's the right next step based on where we're at. Okay, right. let's make that. Now, what do we do now? But over time, there was this cultural, this wealth of cultural um, information. I mean, Alexander talks about it being encoded in what he calls patterns or a pattern language, but where you mm. knew that oh, we put up these columns and these beams or whatever, that we can do that. And now, now we're going to start thinking about you know, the pitch of the roof or whatever it is. But the point was that this, there was an ingrained sequence that meant you weren't getting into trouble later on and you're keeping the what happened down the track malleable plastic flexible so that it could it could respond to and accommodate the forces at play at that moment in the situation as you know as as beautifully as possible as as closely as possible mm. anyway lo lo lovely right. feeling of finding a, a, a you know an overlap between a topic we're obviously both passionate about oh yeah i mean he alexander explained so well that you know the the, uh, the basic idea that as soon as the designer is someone else you know that, that as soon as we there's specialization is really at the root of a lot of this um disconnection because as soon as someone else is in a role of helping a, a person who's not themselves think through you know actions mm. there's that removal of like mm. it being the organic process that it, mm. that it needs to be to be um true and, and functional of just every person meeting their necessity every moment every day that kind of manifestation so it's it, it's almost it really does negate you know in a lot of ways i think people have said wow you know alexander's um writings basically say that architecture shouldn't be a profession in a lot of ways and and it's true I and mean, he really does get at that and i, I think that's kind of hard to um it's hard to argue. I mean, of course, in a world of specialization and industrialization, we that's how it's emerged because we do do these projects where there's there's a scale that we need specialists. But if you think about how most of the time we made our life on, on this planet, 
we could all be our own designer for our own needs the same way maybe we were all much more of our own doctor and um and other things and you know that that um that took care of ourselves that we were able to take care of ourselves mm -hmm. in a, yeah uh, yeah more direct and more local way you know i think a lot of influence of industry and specialization and all of this kind of um you know disembodiment and, and disconnection between how we live out our lives it's interesting stuff yeah i remember remember uh, i think it was called how buildings learn but it was a video documentary based on a book by stuart brand and alexander in there was talking about mm -hmm. he was kind of laughing about the hyper degree to which we have become disempowered and separated from the process of creating our lives of creating our buildings right. and he was saying to the point where we we hire an expert to come and tell us what wallpaper <laughs> to, put on, to put on our yeah. to put on our um, walls and i think I think there is right. this cult. I mean, yeah, part of it's caught up with industrialization and, and capitalism and, and the commoditization of services that were once more communally held. And, and even mm -hmm. when there was specialization, the blacksmith or whatever, um, it was a, a much more local gift type economy or whatever. Sure. Yeah. That there's this, like in, in, in university, part of what happens in a lot of different disciplines is, is a small group of people learn to use long words that the general public don't understand. And um, one of the functions of that is to, like in earlier times, they literally spoke a different language, you know, and, and so it's sort of mm -hmm. to perpetuate that idea and make it inaccessible and perpetuate this boundary. No, this is a special domain that these experts, they have the, they have the special, you know, right. this, this knowledge and, and that you need to engage their services because you're just a, whatever, a citizen and you're just a mere mortal. And, and I think, Right. That's a caricature, but I think there is a flavor of that that I see that, oh, no, I, c I couldn't design my own garden. You know, I, I, I don't know how to draw. Mm -hmm. I, don't know, I don't know what these, some of these words mean. I don't know how to draw plans, and it's part of this institutionalized disempowerment. And, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm excited to be part of, you know, in a tiny drop in the ocean, insignificant in the scheme of things way of, mm -hmm. to me, it, it brings me more alive when I, when I see that that glimmer in the, in the eye of a customer or a client or just a human being on, on in a relationship with of, I can do this. This is, and, and, and I can, I can not only do this, but I can do it in a way that fits me better because I am me and I know me and, and I'm right. not, I'm, right. I'm not trying to, I've just become, I'm coming close friends with a beautiful woman just up the road from me. And she's, she's, I think Alexander would be happy to meet her and see her place, Louisa at Paradiso del, del Amore. But she talked about how a lot of experts were coming in and say, you can't lay bricks. You know, where's your, where's your string line? Where's your whacker? Have you, have you compacted the, the 100 mils of base material or whatever? <laughs> She'd been in a relationship with a builder and just had a supportive enough context to trust herself and be able to say, bugger off, go away. And to do it her way, right. to figure it out as she went. And this, and this in particular, the, the way she's laid out these recycled bricks that she cleaned by hand, the way they seamlessly blend the house and the gardens and just the way they express her and are equally functional and beautiful, you know, it's, it's, it's magic. And I think that's, that is starting to get into the domain that, that Alexander was chasing. And I remember, of course, he started <laughs> with that, that question you're asking yourself as you're riding around. How did this happen? How did such... Equally functional and beautiful buildings arise. That was the starting question, mm -hmm. and he spent his whole career effectively trying to answer that and trying to articulate a, a process that could be shared with others that would enable other people to step back into not only appreciating the beauty of buildings built in the past or landscapes created in the past, but step back into the living current process of let's 
do that. Let's get that happening again. And for me, that's become a real passion and a real priority in the work I do. I don't want just a you know, nice, clean, functional garden that ticks the permaculture boxes or whatever. That's all great. But what about something that's equally is beautiful and really adapted and, and allows the people and the mm. land to be expressing themselves together in something totally unique and just, just right for that situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, like your example of the, of the woman laying bricks, um, who you know is great because that is so much of, I think, what we have to do, at least those of us, if we're in an advising role with people in this field, is really helping them realize that they can do this. You know, that yes. you, you know, you can do this, you need to do this. Um, and claiming, we have to like help them claim their skill, you know, and claim their abilities, which back in the day, I don't know if people had that issue because they just, they knew they had to meet their necessity. It was never, oh, can I do this? It was like, well, I better do this. You know, yeah, that's right. have food, you know, food in March if I don't do this. So I better do this now and figure this out. Yeah, today it's, it's a weird time where we have to, it's a, it is a kind of coaching thing in some ways and a, and a, and a facilitation thing of saying, mm-hmm. this has to be yours. You know, I, I think of um, the medical field a lot for analogy in, in my world because my wife's an naturopathic doctor and I've mm-hmm. had a lot of, kind of healing um, needs, not a lot, but I've had some watershed moments where I realized I had to heal myself from a physical mm-hmm. problem. And I think all all doctors, that's similar to any good doctor at some point has to step away and the patient has to realize that they have to be their own healer. They, you know, they have to be their own doctor. No one else is in a position good enough as they are to be their, their own healer. And you know, we, we find that with land too. And I don't know, back in the back in the day it, it was necessity was so close at hand that we had to you know, we had to rise to that occasion. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. interesting. I was coming across an, an idea in a book not long ago that was talking about how they knew someone in their town who was had a lot of good taste, and he really appreciated the old farmer ways, life ways, and architecture and design. And he knew so much so that he knew he could never make what they made because he he had a whole bunch of money from doing other things, and mm-hmm. so he never would have the necessity. Mm. that they had so he never could do what they did and i thought that was a really powerful idea because it's almost like yeah it, it flips everything on its head i mean it's definitely weird in a capitalist sense to think of mm-hmm. that because your needs are met so easily and in some ways by other people if you have a lot of currency in today's world you actually trade away some very specific abilities mm. uh, potentially if you're in that situation and so some of us some of us maybe have to actively go into situations where we come into contact with our necessities even if we have to contrive it like we go out on a wilderness trip and we're like wow i better i, I should forage right now because i'm hungry and i didn't bring enough food you know and kind of come into that necessity and it, it's hard to bring into daily life i've found but i think it's it's really crucial as an exercise for most of us who can afford any way to spend time getting heady about any of this to probably in position that, that we could do this. And a lot of us who, you know, in this world, if we're not driven by necessity and try to help ourselves uh, come into contact with that, it, it benefits our decision-making greatly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, to- totally, 
totally agree. Yes, something I've been reflecting in that space recently that a flawed idea in our culture, I think, can be sometimes that the point is to get enough money that, yeah, you can outsource all the basic necessities of life to others so you can get on with the <laughs> real stuff of life, you know, which is, I don't know what it is, but trips overseas or something right. like that. <laughs> But that, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be a healthy, connected human being. Where we evolved was in a context where we were yeah, daily confronted with necessity. And the only way we could meet that necessity was, was in close collaboration with our land base and with each other and with ourselves. Mm-hmm. In that space of connectivity, the reality of together creating the world around us, of, of producing our food, of making our furniture, of, of doing whatever, that, that was where, sure, I mean, it was often in the context of there was pain and suffering and everything else, but there was also joy in that. And there was, there was just the raw reality of what it really means to be a, a human being. And like you were kind of alluding to that with that, that guy you're reading mm-hmm. about that, that this trap of, of trying to buy our way back to that doesn't, it doesn't work. <laughs> and that feeling of, like you said, that when we can outsource something, we think there's a certain level, level of freedom there. Like, Oh great. I don't have to uh, do that plumbing right now. I can go do something else. And, we, we don't realize that while sometimes that's a, a nice thing to be able to do, we, we often are trading away real opportunity by not doing the things ourselves. I've had you know, the good fortune to be able to hire people here and there to help develop sites. And I've had this experience a lot. But one example I can just think of recently is I have a friend who, who I hired to help me, who's a much better plumber than I, helped me set up wood stove hot water systems. Mm-hmm. And we've done a few of these. And I don't have to remind myself, but sometimes I remember to actually, when he leaves at the end of the day or when he's here, get into it with him and help him cut pipe or help him lay out, you know, the next line from the stove to the tank or whatever and go through work on it with him. Because if I don't, when, when I don't, I'm not thinking of all of the opportunities that reveal themselves when I'm in it. So every time I do that and get involved with the work, something comes up like, oh, well, wait a minute, we should put a drain here because if I was in this situation, I'd want to be able to get this hot water directly. And you never think that through unless you're engaged in the work, like mm. all of the needs you might have of the system or ways of relating to the system. Mm. And when you're actually engaged in the work, you know, hour after hour, you think of all that. You, you, you kind of become the designer you need to be by being the craftsman. You know, you can't really be the designer and not the craftsman. You know, it, it, the, the role becomes very limited and very uh, kind of shallow when, when we have to carry it out that way. Sometimes we do, but hopefully most of the time we, we try to play both those roles so we can do a good, design, a good job with the design. Mm-hmm. No, totally. No, that's, with the intention and the decision making. Yep. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah, that, that's actually part of my the chapter of my journey that I'm, at the moment I, I fell into a trap realized about a month or so back that I was spending too much time thinking, reading and writing about the need to dissolve the separation between basically uh, designing and, and doing or, or, or action. So I was, mm. I was contradicting mm. myself and, and it's been lovely to be actively pushing back into that space. Like a few weeks ago, my wife, she identified the need for, a, for how a bench seat would, would, would re- really be a beautiful part of our, our dining table uh, situation for a number of really great reasons and, and she said well you're, t- you're too busy so let's let's get someone else to 
well, let's buy one that someone else made. And, uh, and I was in the right space to be able to catch that and say, no, let's, let's do this ourselves. And now to see my kids and friends sitting on the seat that I made, you know, and that I, I know how it works and if it breaks, I can fix it. There's, there's a real, there's a real joy and kind of yeah. pride in, in that. And, and then, which is just a, you know, crumb, but yeah, I, I mean, for, I can imagine for yourself, cause I know you, you are living in a, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're living in a house where, you know, you, you, you were part of cutting down the, the trees and milling the timber and dragging the timber with horses to right. build, you know, so you're, 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 you're living in a context that you deeply understand and have a relationship as, as a craftsperson with there must, must be a real deep feeling of, I don't know, kind of security. And, and, and yeah, I, I mean, I was, I, I come across that a lot. Just the other day I was thinking about something. I fixed something. I forget what it was. I fixed something small Mm-hmm. And was, you know, kind of bemused at like the satisfaction that I kept getting out of it. Like later that day, I kept passing whatever yeah. it was, something I think having to do with a roof. And I was like, so, you know, reveling in the fact that that was broken. Yeah. And without having to leave just with the tools I had at hand, I fixed it. And that's, you know, we all know that experience, those of us who, mm-hmm. who get our hands on stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I, I was I'm surprised there's no word for that feeling yeah. of satisfaction so core and it's such a human uh, core human um, root kind of foundational thing to being human you know to fix something or make something mm. ourselves and and that is really the dance right like the, the designing the intending and the making aren't separate processes at all they're just one organic mm. motion mm. and yeah. like you were talking about before and that's where the joy is, I think, for a lot of us that, that get into that piece of it. Like, because to think about something without doing it is, you know, it's tedious at best. And it's kind of like a, I mean, it might be a power trip and kind of fun for people in that way. But it's, you know, it's not the dance of like the intermaking of things. I had an old farmer neighbor who was going to help me fix, he came over to help me fix uh, something on the tractor. And he knew I was like wanting to talk it through like, Oh, well, this is how it's behaving. And mm-hmm. what do you think it could be? And he's like, he's like, well, just lift up the hood and let me start kind of you know, beating on this thing a little bit. Like he knew that he had to do a few things to the the machine to figure out what it was anyway. So why waste his time talking about it when he could like lift up, you know, the engine cover and start mm-hmm. pulling a few things off because he knew he'd, you know, he'd have to do that anyways. Mm-hmm. And while he's doing that, he'd be engaging in the feedback and the information gathering necessary instead of talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was like wanting to kind of talk it through at one point and I don't know engines very well. He's like, oh, let, let me just kind of start putting my hands on this thing, you know, and we'll yeah, figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was a good, you know, a nice reminder. Mm, yeah, it's a lovely, lovely example. I've been, I'm, I'm constantly trying to find uh, better ways of articulating some of these ideas to, to the world, to, 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 you know, all the audience of folk that are interested in design and, 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 and all that. And I'm, I'm exploring the idea of thinking of it as an organism. What would it mean for the process of making something, creating something to be an organism, where an organism is a, it's an ongoing, the word organism comes from organize and that comes from organ where to organize is to make something into an organ which is to make it into a you know harmoniously contributing and functioning part of a greater whole and then we turn that um, verb organize which is the process of making things into organs into organism so as a noun it's a noun of action and what it means is the, the, the ongoing process of these things being brought in and just kept in in, in 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 synergistic relationships with each other and when we're talking about the relationship of intention 
of design or thinking and of, of doing or action. Yeah, I'm exploring this idea of let's think about those things as, as organs that are inseparable. And if you if you take the organ out of the organism, you know, the organism dies. What does it mean for them all to be co-partners in this ever-unfolding dance together? And it's been lovely to be exploring that that ter- territory with you, with you today, Ben. You as well. I, I, I like the um, all the parallels. I meant to say before that I'm really happy to hear about someone reading all the other Christopher Alexander books. And I love <laughs> if we ever meet up, if you ever come to Vermont, we'll have to sit around and talk to Christopher Alexander if I ever get to your neck of the woods. Because I have some of his other works and I've dabbled into um, the the nature of order, I guess. You know, the huge yep. tome yep. that yep. was yep. recent. But I must say that most, you know, the, the 95% of my time with him is is basically rereading the first half of Timeless Way of Building yep. and just yep. leafing through every pattern over and over again. And I'm like, I feel like I'll do that for my whole life and still be getting mm. something out of mm-hmm. uh, out of that. You know? So mm. I don't move on to the, to the other works <laughs> so much. Yeah, yeah, so much yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, sometimes I think that people hear me going on about Christian Alexander and think, oh, okay, that's just some other author, some other human, which is true. But yeah, like you say, that just the amount of, I think he spent seven years writing the timeless way of building, just the mm-hmm. the insight and the, the offerings in there. And then he spent 30 years writing the 2000 page, four volume Nature of Order series that I've that oh. totally has blown me away and totally transformed the way I approach design and that's a big thing for me in permaculture where there's a huge amount of literacy about christopher alexander and about his wonderful idea about pattern languages and patterns where but the reality is that he he saw them as being a a a failure he was really disappointed with how people used that understanding in actual design and construction projects not because it was internally flawed but because it was incomplete and then he spent the rest of his career i mean well he's still alive he's spending the rest of his career but particularly in the nature of order series trying to articulate the the dynamics of the process of a healthy what he called a living process only within which this idea of patterns and pattern languages could really kind of uh, realize its its potential but yeah i mean i'd love to i'd love to yeah i mean i'd love to visit your place at some point it'd be great to hang out and explore this stuff but at the least we'll have i'd love to have another you know i'd I'd like not to think of this as as it you know it'd be lovely to continue this conversation one way or another over the over the years to come sure yeah, well, that's an inspiration to look at, at to spend some more time with the the first volume of Nature of Order, which I have because I, I, it is interesting to think about how we're talking about the need for to be in contact with necessity. Mm. So much of what he's getting out of his living process, you know, mm. being, yep. you know, wonder if they're the same thing or similar things, mm. you know. Yeah, no, t- totally. It's out of the four volumes. It's definitely number two, volume two. That's been the I mean, they're all great, but and and they're all a necessary part of the the bigger picture. But volume two is where it really goes into the dynamics of a living process, mm. yeah, and all these ideas that I'm kind of really hungry to sort of see in the in the mix and see people exploring and rolling this this stuff out. I feel like permaculture's potential is is huge. You know, the the potential for for permaculture is a fast growing growing global movement with so much beautiful you know, essence to it, the foundations and the ethics and the principles and the overall aspiration and the idea of repartnering with life in a really practical mm. way is, is, is unique and, and, and incredible. And yet I think Alexander's work is just this huge, has, has potentially so much, the synergies between them I think are, are enormous. And I, it's kind of part of my life's work is exploring that synergy and, 
And so I'll, I'm not going to give up any time soon. And, and it's just really great to, to to have you in the mix as well. I mean, I'm conscious we've, yeah. we've probably, you know, we've had a great chat here. Probably time to sure. say goodbye for now. Sure. But um, thank yeah, you no, so much. Good. I don't you know. Do, if, you do it. You, you, I, I've heard, oh, I've heard on podcasts, I'm new to podcasts, but often at the end they say, is there any, uh, you know, is there any, anything, any remaining comments or any closing comments you'd like to, to make before we, we say goodbye? Yeah, no, I think just, you know, we, we covered a bit and just encourage people to keep jumping into all of this and, and whatever it leads them to. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I couldn't agree more that um, the, uh, the process that, and, and what, Chris Alexander represents, at least for, in spe- for some specifics here, is so vast and has a lot to offer people um, mm. into some of the larger ideas we, we talked about today. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for your inquiry because it, it takes time and energy to, to drive this inquiry. And I, like I mentioned to you on email, you know, we all go in different phases in our life. Mm. And like right now, I'm kind of in a phase of like moving away from some of the big kind of uh, headier questions around mm. things and just like enjoying you know fixing mm. stuff and making yeah. stuff and yeah. you know doing whatever like the facilities management that I do in my life but um, it's nice to be brought back into this I think your your inquiries is really um, a timely right now so yeah thanks for driving that forward Oh, thanks, thanks, Ben. Yeah, I was just about to say, yeah, oh, you, you might have to resist my attempts to drag you back into the conversation. And I was going to say too that sometimes I ask myself, why am I, like you say, it's a lot of time and effort. A lot of my life force is going into this. I say, I ask myself, what am I doing this for? You know, what what's going on here? But it's it's in conversations like the one we've just enjoyed that it helps remind me why, why I'm doing this. So thanks mm. for that. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, same here. I feel the same way. Beautiful. Okay, until next time. Great. Thanks, Dan. Thanks a lot. Wow, what a lovely conversation. Far out. I enjoyed that so much. Uh, I mean, if there's anyone else out there who's um, up for a conversation of that kind, then hit me up, get in touch, because I am hungry for that kind of action. That whole thing, uh, Ben's beautiful way of expressing the idea of authentic deep beauty as a byproduct of gracefully meeting necessity. I uh, just, I mean, the example of the old guy in the tractor, so, so, so much rich content. Anyway, I'll wrap this up. I wanted to point you at Ben's website, which is wholesystemsdesign.com. Check it out. Well worth a visit. Some beautiful uh, video, uh, short videos as well as a bunch of other content. Uh, makingpermaculturestrong.net is where you can check in and chime in to the latest uh, conversations and inquiries. Anyways, thanks for listening and look forward to catching up with you next time. Bye-bye. Yeah.